1: Imagination has been trivialized to child's play. But I believe a culture's imaginal world can be a great indication of the culture's health. So does our media, particularly fiction, reflect positive or negative virtues and values? Have stories been replaced by signaling? Character replaced by identity? Is dystopian fiction really relatable? Or is this some kind of conditioning that's been going on for, well, many decades? All of this is in the wheelhouse of today's guest, author of a new novel titled In the Next Moment Everything Will Change, an exploration of love, time travel, and the prism of narrative. Author Daniel Caulfield joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast to discuss all of this and so much more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Daniel Caulfield. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and I am here with an author who's going to be joining us to talk about fiction, the philosophy behind fiction and why it's important in our world today, why it's sparse and what about the world of media has changed. I'm excited to have this gentleman on the show. His name is Daniel Caulfield. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? When did you start to wake up to maybe the notion that what they taught you in school isn't quite what's really going on in the world, what they're telling us in the media isn't what's really going on in the world? When did you start to see Beyond the Veil?
3: I think I've always felt a little bit out of place and I think maybe around eighth grade, it, it probably became more pronounced, that feeling. I think I had my first experience with, with marijuana around that. That might have been part of it. Then maybe my, my senior year, I started taking LSD, and it, it blew my mind quite a bit. And it sort of threw me into that reality of the the unknown, like where, you know, you're, you're kind of sailing around the world without a map or whatever. And I think, you know, I I got married after, you know. And I had children, and that sort of leveled out. And then maybe around 2016, I was a big Bernie supporter. It was the first time in my life I'd been really interested in politics. And just watching the way that whole thing went down uh, really sort of, I guess, woke me up to the sort of things I'd been believing, the lies we've been told or whatever. And, you know, since that time, things have only gotten more crazy and—or crazy-making— and yeah, I, I mean, it, it it's, it's been one, one thing after another, really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I was thinking about LSD the other day. It's something that is still very legal. I don't hear it mentioned much when psychedelics are talked about when, you know, mushrooms and marijuana seem to be kind of ubiquitous. Now LSD is still kind of on the fringes. Maybe I just don't have the right circles that I roll in, but it's been a while. Not since I was in college that I, well, when I was college age, I only spent a year in college, but it's, it's been a while since I've had a chance to do LSD. And it is, it's a, it's a totally different experience than mushrooms. Really. I would call it my experience with it. Life-changing, uh, Time will tell if those are good or bad changes, but I, I certainly feel like it changed my life. And I'm curious, as far as your LSD experiences go, went, did you have like a, a sort of process that you underwent? Was it like a party atmosphere? Was it like a meditative atmosphere? Like what was your experience with that substance like?
3: No, the, the first time I did it was with a small group of friends. And it was the 4th of July. And we took it and we walked down to. I grew up in New Hampshire, so a pretty small town. We walked down to watch the fireworks, and I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, I, I grew up during the dare time, I and mean, LSD was probably around because of the Grateful Dead. It was sort of cyclical. Like anytime the Grateful Dead would come around, I think we'd, we'd have LSD. And the first time I just took one tab. And it was it was fairly mellow. I mean the fireworks, ever since then I haven't been able to watch fireworks because the yeah. fireworks were just like so amazing I couldn't believe It, it was just so beautiful. And you know, during that trip, I don't remember having any huge spiritual insights. Just I mean it was fairly gentle. But but then, you know, I, I started taking it. I went to college and it was around more and I started taking it and I was thinking of it as sort of a way to experience something or or get to the bottom of reality. And I just I had these trips, some of them very bad, like that where I was just, I don't know, thrown into well, I was reading at the time a lot of philosophy, and one of the books I was reading, I think, was called Labyrinths of Reason. And it had this like thought experiment called brain in the vat, and it was like maybe an early. I think the book was written in the in the sixties or seventies, and it was like maybe an origin of simulation theory, where you could your brain could be in a vat, and you could and, and you could have all these electrodes connected that could trigger experiences, and you know by by doing that, you wouldn't be able to know whether you're having the actual experience or your brain was in a vat. And I would just get stuck in thoughts like this about how, how do I know what I'm experiencing is real and it was I mean at the time there were really there was really nobody talking about that stuff that I knew about and there were no podcasts like this where you're like oh the other people have had this experience and you know I just started feeling a little crazy because I was thinking about this stuff all the time and I don't know I think for about two years I took LSD fairly regularly and then I had to stop because my life was just getting chaotic and yeah, I think it took another two years for me to sort of metabolize all
1: of that. Yeah, it's it's something that I don't take lightly and I don't recommend it to people, especially if they seem like they're gonna take it lightly. And I'm glad you shared that because you have a point. Like until podcasting came around, we, we didn't get a lot of, you know, exposure to actual information about what these substances can do over long periods of time you'd hear like anecdotes you'd have cases of people who maybe just lost the plot and went insane and maybe ended up in a, in a mental institution or something but that always seemed a little bit like sensational and hard to trust too because i
3: had, I had friends that happened wow yeah. uh, friends we started very early i had, I had uh, one friend his name is chris regazza he was a good friend of mine in the seventh grade. And, and I think by eighth grade, he was already taking LSD. And he ended up in rehab and later, I think, in and out of institutions. I saw him one time when I was maybe in my 20s, and it was just frightening. He was in the woods cooking uh, odd dogs. He's almost, I think, basically almost. Yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, it can't have it bad effects on on people. And so, yeah, it's like, I I was listening to Jeff Berwick. He was being interviewed by somebody just a few days ago. And uh, he was talking about he went off sailing around the world or thought he was going to. You know, when he bought a sailboat, he didn't even know how to sail. And he didn't even know that you were supposed to have things like maps or whatever. And he ended up crashing his, his boat up on the shoals in El Salvador. And he almost died. And, like, it was a great story. But, you know, recommending LSD, I think, to people is kind of like saying, you know, sailing around the world without a map is a good idea. And it is a good idea for some people, you know. Like, some people can do that, but other people can't.
1: Right. I definitely hear you there. I think that's a good analogy. And you know, it's why the term Psychonaut exists, because it is it is adventuring, there's tons of risks that come with that when you're traveling to other realms. Now, when it comes to this, and hold on a second. Are you, you're using, you're not using headphones, right? You're I'm, I'm just broadcasting through your speakers. You hear me? Yeah, speakers. is there a problem? Just turn, if you could turn it down just a little bit, because I'm starting to catch feedback oh, through sure. your, your microphone when I'm talking.
3: I could also put on headphones if I... It's up
1: to you. If you're more comfortable without them, as long as I'm just not hearing feedback, it's fine. See what it's like. But, but yeah, as I was saying, I think that's a good analogy for it, you know, (laughs) taking a sailboat and you can't end up shipwrecked if you don't know what you're doing or where you're going. And, Substances like DMT seem to have sort of ramped these experiences up. I personally have never broken through with LSD. I've never taken enough to like go beyond to what could be compared to like a dream sort of scenario. I don't know many people that have had those sort of experiences. It seems like, if anything, these sorts of psychedelics augment. Your reality or or change your perception. They don't actually take you to some other realm. Whereas DMT, even in small doses, has this capability. Maybe in high enough doses, mushrooms and acid can do that. I just personally haven't experienced it. I've heard stories of it. But It is this like kind of new frontier that isn't all that new, you know, especially when you consider these thoughts or theories that folks have about the ancient world and how there seems to be evidence of psychedelic use in certain pagan cultures and whatnot. So there's still tons to be explored, but what was your major takeaway? Obviously, you walked away from regular use of LSD, but, you know, since processing all this, do you have any major takeaways do you still kind of think in that brain in the vat sort of in those terms you know because I find myself doing that from time to time like when synchronistic things happen you know you kind of ask yourself like whoa did that really just happen
3: yeah I I mean I, I guess the the major takeaway was was just it was an incredibly humbling experience is this does this sound better for you is it sound better
1: sounds great thank you
3: Okay. Yeah, it was it was incredibly humbling, is is what I would say. And I think since that time, I've been reluctant to take anything at at face value. And I mean, I think as a you know, even as a child, I was I was very spiritual. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I always believed in a God, which like I never had a, a clear concept of what God was, but I always wondered and wanted to know. And I think that's part of what led me to LSD. And, you yeah, know, I, th- I mean, I think that the fact that I'm open to what people call conspiracy theories or whatever, it's just, I, I think it's it's sort of part of the, of what comes with being incredibly humble by your own knowledge or or the, the limits of your own knowledge. And so it's very hard for me to say anything is wrong or anything is absolutely right. right. You know, when I hear people talk about the flat earth, like not only do I think like, I mean, we're talking a little bit you know, theoretically, we're talking a little bit about fiction. Not only do I think, well, this is a really good story, you know, that this is a solid story. If I was reading this in a book, it would keep me reading. But I think, wh- what do we know? You know, and who wh- am I to say that these people are wrong, or that there's not some powerful metaphor in this? Like, that there's not something people are experiencing as flatter, or as, uh, I don't know, what would I say? Like, the flat Earth is representative of some other subconscious experience of the world that's very prevalent right at this time. And that, at the very least, I should be interested in that. Like, what are these people experiencing? Are they trying to? What is this story trying to tell them? Yeah. So no, I think in that respect, like I'm so thankful. For, for the experience. Like, you know, before, I guess, you know, you know in, until about 2018, I was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor. And one of the things I loved about that was Brazilian jiu-jitsu was just, it was limitless in its ability to humble you. And, you know, when I was training, it, it was the greatest experience to go in and and be humbled and saying being able to see that there was so much that I didn't know about the art. And... I think that, I don't know, that did, did early experiences with LSD prepared me for for a lot of things mm. in life. prepared me to be a, a lifetime learner, you know, rather than to just, you know, have like my mind formed in concrete and unable to open it up
1: to other people's ideas. Well said. Yeah, I, I can say I've, I've experienced a similar path, you know, in some ways. Psychedelics and cannabis definitely were a part of my martial arts journey. I definitely think I could use some humbling these days. I should probably get back into martial arts. But yeah, and another thing that you brought to my attention—it seems to, at least—it seems to be in the forefront of part of what you just expressed—is this like accessing the subconscious or the subliminal. Like, what the point you express about flat earth, I think, is really important and significant in the sense that there's something subliminal or subconscious there that keeps people engaged, whether it's, you know, leading them to truth or whether it's some psyop, you know, you can take either uh, route with that. I think in the conspiracy community, it's one of the most divisive topics because, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, no way other people are like yes this is the only way (laughs) and anytime Mm -hmm. you have something like that it it tends to be kind of alluring but i wonder you know particularly because your your comment about the grateful dead and everything we've learned about the counterculture or what seemed to be counterculture that might have been manufactured Mm -hmm. in order to sort of dismantle this strong christian identity that was in the in america maybe pre-world wars also probably after the world wars but definitely after the counterculture revolution you see this whole you know new division in society when it comes to religion culture but also conspiracy thought because at the same time that you know the counterculture had their conspiracies against the man the christian community had similar conspiracies. And, and I think flat earth, it kind of comes out of that milieu. I, don't, I mean, not that this mm-hmm. is a, a flat earth show or anything, but, you know, given what we've learned about the government's involvement in maybe allowing the counterculture or helping spread these drugs throughout society. Do you think that, you know, is it, in any way kind of implies that conspiracy theory itself was also kind of manufactured. Like how far do you go <laughs> questioning when, when, cause that's kind of how I feel. One of the side effects of taking psychedelics is you, you put it pretty well, like you never take anything at face value anymore. Right. So we even have to question right. the counter stuff that seems Counter to the me- the main to the mainstream,
3: yeah. As far as conspiracy theory goes, like if you listen, to Alex Jones, everything's population control. I don't think of it that way. I think more it's about division. And you know, if there are psyops going on, the ones I see are about dividing the male female connection, dividing the family connections, dividing the connection between people and their their religion people in their community, and in as much as conspiracy theory divides people, I think it's useful in that respect. You don't want people to be able to talk to each other and especially talk to people that they perceive as different than them and have open conversations because I I, I always thought that was the danger of Bernie Sanders. Like, you know, I'm 50 years old. I've seen a bunch, well, at least a few of um, these sort of insurgencies of collectivism appear in the world. And each time it happens, something, you know, comes in that divides people. And, you know, maybe before the Grateful Dead, there were these very intellectual, thoughtful people on the music scene, like, you know, Bob Dylan was one of them in the folk community um, in New York City. And almost overnight suddenly the soon you know erupted just sprang out of nowhere and LSD you know hit the scene and so yeah I think in some respects it may have been there to dilute or I don't know complicate the message right yeah I I, I mean I think I yeah you, I mean I I really appreciate your question it's like it's like a deep question I think as much As we get siloed into our beliefs, like as much as like we get sort of frozen into one perspective, maybe we're succumbing to the psyop. Like as much as we can continue to talk to our families or spouses or neighbors, the people who we perceive as on the opposite side, that we're being resilient to the psyop.
1: Well, and maybe this is a good point to segue into more of what you're here to talk about and how fiction used to be a sort of vehicle for these larger dialogues now it seems to have alienated alienated a lot of people in favor of one particular group's narrative and a dialogue just around that and you, you kind of put it to me in in the email is like people are are they're not you know it's not passing their smell test right like in other mm-hmm. words they they see this netflix truth agenda whatever you want to call it this like woke propaganda stuff and they're just sick of it you know they want to see something that represents not even something closer to their values but just what television used to be you know something that entertains them not something that's you know just full of of, of subliminal subliminal messaging. Now, when it comes to psychedelics conspiracy, do you think these themes work well within that fictional setting? Because personally, my bookshelf is full of nonfiction stuff. I have mm-hmm. a smaller section of fiction books, and there's a few authors that have come on the show that write fiction and they'll send me, you know, their books, but they also write nonfiction. So it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's for me, I'm more, I guess, drawn to that side of things because I guess I came to that same conclusion that you described many people coming to now where you're like, mm, I want something real or I want something that's not full of subliminal messaging, but back to my question just to rephrase it, you know, do you think fiction is is a good vehicle for these sort of themes?
3: Well, I guess what I would say is absolutely. Like you know, you're 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 not alone in that. Your book self is now full of nonfiction. I think that that's been you know the, the sort of the general direction the world's been traveling. In in my mind, it sort of started with Malcolm Gladwell because Malcolm Gladwell was a very talented writer who brought all the devices of fiction to what people perceived and what was presented to people as nonfiction. But what he was doing was creating a story around his what he called nonfiction, right? So every there would be characters in his stories. He would describe people. He would give them these, these characterizations that made them interesting and, and get people invested in the story. And I yeah. think a lot of people picked up on this that this was a much more powerful way to deliver nonfiction. And this is sort of, I think What's happened to fiction as well, in the opposite way, is it's been, you know, now converted into this host that carries a message, right? It's it's in the message, you know, where the messages are all these parasites that attach itself, attach themselves to the fiction, and maybe the people writing these things are writing true fiction, and then... You know, they submit this great screenplay, this great script, this great novel, and people say, oh, no, it needs more of this. It needs more of this. And then all these parasites get attached to it. And you look at it, and it's revolting, because all you see are the parasites. But I think that, you know, the, the testament to fiction is modern nonfiction, that when you tell a story, people get engaged. And my thinking is that it's if you can tell a real story something that feels real that is not real and you're being honest at the outset that this is fiction that that can be far more powerful because people are warned from the outset they they're letting their guard down cuz you you're promising this is this is fiction i'm going to tell you a story and anything in there that you can take from it is just coming straight out of my unconscious hopefully collect or uh, connecting to the collective unconscious and and I don't know I think there's a purity in that that you can't find in nonfiction because you always have to be suspicious about w- what is the agenda here like am I being sucked in And in my mind like there w- there was a real change around that time of Malcolm Gladwell. common people started reading, what they considered nonfiction. And I was living in New York City at the time, and I would go to dinners, and everybody would be talking about the latest Malcolm Gladwell book like everything in it was true. Like parents would be feuding about what age their kids were when they sent them to school. And all these things that Malcolm Gladwell had pointed out, right? They were trying to, you know, jockey their kids into the absolute perfect position based on a Malcolm Gladwell book which is kind of hilarious because it was just one man's idea. And like I say, Malcolm Gladwell is a great writer. And I don't think there, you know, he consciously thought I'm going to manipulate people, but he discovered this thing. And yeah, no, I think if there were more great fiction writers or more like just even good fiction books out there that we would still be reading fiction, but everybody knows the the contract between a reader and a writer. Everybody has a sense of that. Like our we have an innate sense of what makes a good story. Mm-hmm. And the moment you try to turn a story into a lesson or a lecture, people walk away. Right. And they should.
1: And it does you're making a really great point here. As I kind of think about my visits to bookstores, the, the genres of fiction books seem to have taken over the stories themselves in the sense that you'll have you know, drama, you'll have kind of like horror and there's tons of books being published each year in those genres They seem to be very popular. But it's more about the genre itself, the setting itself, you know. There are some authors that kind of rise to the top, but it does feel like, you know, literature in the sense of like, you know, books that didn't necessarily fit any one genre but more spoke to the human condition the condition of the time period when the book was written, you know, those books seem to be all from a certain time period. Like, you know, it's few and far between nowadays that you'll have someone, you know, write a book that's comparable to something Twain wrote or, or, or one of these, you know, academically favored authors. And maybe that has more to do with it. You know, the whole role of academia and the publishing culture that seems to, you know, go with what sells rather than what's honest. I mean, do you think there's an aspect to the economy of maybe the book industry that has gotten, you know, gotten in the way of, of maybe the the more honest stories that are at the foundation of, of our human culture?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, look at Netflix. I don't know what it was, four years ago that they removed audience ratings? Hmm. Like you can't look at the way an audience the audience rates a movie anymore. Right. And at the time, Netflix had just started putting out their own movies, and everybody was upset by the messaging. And so people would watch it, watch one or two shows, and they'd rate it one star. And so all the Netflix, the whole like you know Netflix book had like one and two star ratings. And occasionally, you you know they they put out something that was actually good and didn't have a whole bunch of like. You know, hidden agendas in it, and it would get a good rating. And so instead of just looking at that and saying, people don't like this, they just did away with the rating system. You could do a thumbs up or thumbs down, and that was only used to recommend the movie to certain people. And so, yeah, I think the problem with literature nowadays is that it's so hard to find anything good. Like you've got the New York Times, right? What books do they review? They review books that are delivering their message right we don't care if the book is good like if it's if it's well told right they care who wrote it you know what their sexuality was you know where they came from and whether the book has you know a certain number of what they consider fringe characters in it or or, or whatever you know and so where do you go to look for good books like i mean if Somebody could introduce me to a book list of books that that were absent of, of propaganda or, you know, that were really trying. And I mean, that's one thing I, I really paid attention to in my book. Like, I have my own ideology, my own political beliefs, my own agenda. But, you know, year after year when I was writing that book, like anywhere I saw that pop up, like I would wince, you know, and sometimes it would be a great passage, but it would just have this thing in it. And I'm saying that's coming from something in me that's very superficial, right? That's a superficial idea and I would have to yank it out. And I don't know I don't know that my book could have been published by a major publishing house, like not because it has ideas from the opposite side, but because I just refuse to carry any parasites.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm sure you're not alone. There's tons of authors that we talk to on podcasts like these, and that's a big reason why I became a fan of these types of, you know, we'll call them conspiracy podcasts for lack of a better word, but I I never was really drawn too much to Infowars, you know, back in the early days of podcasting. What I really got interested in was seeing authors I was familiar with because, you know, I had collected tons of books and you know barely read through any of them because my life like just didn't give me any time to read them and then I realized like whoa I could learn from these guys while I'm working all I need is a pair of headphones and I just my my learning journey has just gone from there but I I I'm in concert with you I second that thought I wish there was a great book list that was you know, we'll say fair and maybe transparent, but yeah, I think Substack, you know, shameless plug, I I use it. I think it's a great tool for for writers, you know, not that I've authored any books, but I definitely have tried to write more and get my my mind wrapped around that. And it's something that I think the internet will hopefully get around to, but I wonder, you know, maybe Amazon, as as nasty as they are and as bad of a reputation as they have, I wonder if their rating system or their ranking system is probably the closest thing we can get to, like, an honest idea of what books are actually popular, right? Because I'm sure they have just, like, a, a total number of sales statistic, right? So, and their categories seem to be very broad, you know, whereas, like, Barnes & Noble tends to shove everything in the self-help section. You know, anything that's kind of conspiracy-related is just right right in the self-help section for some reason. Amazon has, like, more, you know, specific categories within those sort of fringe areas that we're interested in. So in that sense, you know, maybe it's just the demand for these books where they don't really have a choice, but it seems like the bigger book outlets, they're not too happy about how great those types of books sell. Like maybe this is just my perspective, but it doesn't seem like those books as well as they do ever make it to like the, the displays in the front when you walk in, you know, Barnes and Noble and your local, you know, bookshop, they have a, they have an agenda that's pretty obvious, you know, like a lot of the local bookshops around me that aren't used bookshops It's just one type of book, you know, it's all this New York Times bestseller propaganda stuff. So the literary industry is definitely, you know, it's controlled. But I think the fact is, is that media and the Internet is turning that paradigm upside down, which hopefully will will, you know, lead to more opportunities for great authors to get out there. It seems like people like Graham Hancock have made, you know, good use of this kind of you know we'll call it a a fringe but more mainstream category right the whole ancient you know conversation is is very popular maybe because of history channel and all that nonsense that they show on history channel but yeah what do you think of of fiction as a a tool for this kind of information because it, it doesn't seem like like there's you know, money, there's much emphasis or anybody's really like rooting for people writing about these topics from, we'll call it a a fringe perspective. Are you talking specifically about... Well, it's like an uphill battle already for even nonfiction authors to get their stuff published, you know, within these more fringe categories. I imagine it's even more difficult for fiction authors to you know, I've seen a couple fiction authors, you know, they just have their own publishing company. You know, now that the internet, you could kind of self publish. It seems like many people take that route now because the, you know, literary world is just, it's like controlled by the publishers and academia.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, in a certain respect, it's, it's, a bit of a trap to get sucked into this idea that you need to be published by a big publisher. You know, that, that that is, you know, when when I was growing up, when I first dreamed, you know, one day maybe I'll I'll write a novel, um, that was the measure of success. And I think now it's I mean, in some respect, yes. Like you've you've read the market well and, and you've you've produced something that I mean it's a little bit like going viral, right? But like, you know, the I guess if you're going to have the algorithm manipulate you into what you're writing it's maybe a little bit like you know if I went on Instagram and let's just say I was female and I went on Instagram my my intention was to publish a bunch of poetry or whatever you know and then one day you know I happened to be at the beach and I take a picture of myself in a bathing suit and whereas my poetry was getting you know 10 20 likes or whatever, hearts, suddenly I'm getting 200 or 250 or, or, or maybe even more. And slowly the algorithm bends me like toward, like now I'm, you know, who knows, I'm on OnlyFans or whatever, you know? And I think that paying too much attention to what, like before, you know, I said there's a contract between reader and writer. I think that that's the contract we should be paying attention to. And there's a should be a contract to, being truthful, being honest about your own experience, trying to write things that are that tap some deep well in yourself. But in, you know, I think that in, in, you know, in the case of Graham Hancock, like I, I think I've listened to him on Joe Rogan at least once or twice, and I mean, he's a guy who's just very, very, very deeply committed and invested in into this idea. And I, I, when I listen to him, that's the thing that really captures me is that this is a guy, you know, who's done this, you know, as a hobby for 15 or 20 years. He's researched all of this stuff and his passion about it comes through in the way he talks about it and all, With you know, he has this entire hard drive of images and whatever he can show all of these Um you know, these different things as he's speaking about them. And, you know, I think it, I, I think it's the passion that, that is the driver of the interest there. And also, I mean, of course, he's, he's incredibly intelligent and he, he's well-researched. So as far as could literature be a vehicle, you know, for that sort of thing, I don't think it needs to be because I think that I think literature is a vehicle for something else. Like, it's not a vehicle for specific ideas. When you're as well researched as Graham Antock, you should be writing nonfiction. Mm. And if you can write it in an interesting way, that's all the better.
1: What about writing something like the experience of someone in the ancient past? Like, you'd have to uh, fictionalize as much as you can't, you know, provide evidence for, right? I, I think I'm making a wild guess here, but I I think I've heard Graham Hancock is a fiction author as well. I think he's written like a novel or two, but if may, maybe not him, maybe somebody else similar to him, but I have heard that concept before. And it's a, I think it's a great, you know, vehicle for that, you know, if not facts and figures and, and theories, but more of like give, allowing someone to be taken into what that time period was like, you know, historical fiction, I guess you would call that. But when it, when we're talking about, you know, literature and, and really what media is now, I mean, television and movies have kind of taken over that role in many ways. Tons of great novels become great movies or fail at becoming great movies, but are still great novels. Right you mentioned in your your email to me that you know this npc phenomena that many people are describing on the internet maybe that's more of a symptom of how our media has changed how our stories how our characters that were presented have changed can we get into that subject a little bit more and like your thoughts on the the main character versus the non-player character idea
3: yeah um, you know, that occurred to me uh, just only a couple of weeks ago. But I was I was thinking about my novel. It the 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 main character, it, you know, grew up with nineteen eighties television, and you know that was sort of those are those are some of the big stories that are existing in his mind, like these character arcs, and one of the problems he's having in his life is this inability to move beyond this sort of limited loop or limited character arc. And, you know, the interesting things about those shows is that, you know, they had a, what would you call it? I guess a, each show had its own little arc, right? And, and they were always almost exactly the same. And, and so like Thomas Magnum could never have a regular girlfriend because then that would limit that character arc, right? He you c- you couldn't have this continuing relationship because then he could never meet anybody new like uh, you know a case had to be be solved in in, in one episode right so you get this recurring circle mm. right and so in a way the character in my book has learned from this recurring circle and he's he's suffering from this recurring circle in his own life and but one of the things that existed in the you know late late 70s and then in the 1980s in the television that that I was exposed to Is almost every show had a main character. You know, like, you know, there's like Rockford Files and Magnum PI or Quantum Leap. You know, all these shows existed with one main character. And everyone else was sort of tangential. They were friends, you know, associates, whatever. But they all had one main character. And nowadays, one of the things I see is most shows don't, Mm. that they'll present, you know, five characters, six characters. Or they'll have a bunch of different stories going on, right? And it's almost like these are examples of who you can be, right? You're not a main character anymore. You're you're somebody who's who's part of this, like, this this bigger story that, that's occurring.
1: Yeah, around you're part of a cast. Pick pick whichever role suits exactly. suits you instead of define yeah. yourself. So, wow. Yeah. Well,
3: so like maybe friends would be the key example of that, where it, I mean, my daughters, when they were growing up, loved friends. Right. And everybody would consider, well, which friend am I? <laughs> right. Right? And and so I never thought of myself as Jim Rockford or Thomas Magnum. But there's this sense in, in that you're experiencing the show or you're experiencing it as a main character. And I, I don't know whether that's... Good or bad, like maybe we can't have everybody thinking they're a main character. But it's interesting to me. And now now when people start talking about NPCs and in like there are all these people who are not experiencing their life as a main character, I think, well that's interesting because that's also prevalent in in TV.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I was recently watching one of my favorite shows from that era, The A-Team. And one of the things I read about The A-Team is that they had they had a female cast member for the first season, and it, uh, eventually they switched her out, and then they realized it was easier to just not have... <laughs> it was a guys' club kind of atmosphere on set, so they're like, let's just have the women kind of rotate you know, new one each episode, right? So then Face would romance a new sweetheart each episode. But that is, it's interesting to think about how that affected the average viewer watching those shows that were, you know, more of that format. Another kind of strange example would be the Twilight Zone, although it doesn't really fit into the the era that we're kind of laying out But maybe the twilight zone was an example of like a premonition of what television was to become where you know now the black black mirror show kind of took on that Mm -hmm. same dynamic where each episode is a completely different story it's more that the theme of the show is is like an anthology of weird stories or or sci-fi stories right it definitely i think it it let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors and also talk about our guests. Excellent novel that is available right now on Kindle for free. If you have Kindle unlimited or you can pick it up for a low price at nine dollars 99. And it's about David Wilson. Who's on the lamb. If he can stay ahead of the law long enough to finish his great novel, Wilson's journey intersects with bizarre roadside attractions, the strange world of go-go dancers, pinball machines, Illuminati conspiracies, and a cast of eccentric characters who are all equally seeking personal vindication and suffering from the effects of lost love. David just needs to hold himself together long enough to write it all down. Absurd, darkly humorous, and at times, romantic in the next moment everything will change an exploration of love time travel and the prism of narrative by daniel caulfield pick it up today and we also have our amazing sponsor that is the hit kit of course locking it down keeping us together the number one sponsor that this podcast has ever had our longest running sponsor and he's always sending me cool stuff the latest jay walker hit kit was awesome it clips right on my belt you got your little dube tube right there your lighter and recently somebody messaged me i think i posted a hit kit or a picture of one somewhere and they're like oh that's what those things look like that's pretty cool And I'm like, yeah, I've been talking about it here on the podcast long enough. So go over to Instagram and just take a look at what my man Garrett has put together. Because whether you think you need it or not, I think you will want one as soon as you lay your eyes on it. Plus, you can get your own custom design. So whether you're token or smoking on blunts, joints, or spliffs, whatever you're rolling up, the Hit Kit is the perfect way to keep it all Locked down safe and sound. So use that promo code CRAZY and save at checkout and let Garrett know you heard about him on this show. Right after this quick break from our dynamically inserted ads, which of course I have no control over, folks. So don't blame me if you hear an ad for your local hospital or the U.S. Army, or whoever knows, who knows whatever else, maybe McDonald's, I don't know, but sign up on Patreon or Substack and you'll get every single episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad free. So with that, we'll see you in a moment after this ad break. And this might be, you know, maybe a bad thing considering the state of genders, but I I don't want to make this too much of a, a commentary on culture, more about media it seems like there was more of a masculine focus with the media in the seventies and the eighties. I mean, just the shows we reference were all guys with guns, you know, shooting stuff up in different ways. <laughs> you know, the A team, I love those guys. They would save the day every time, even though they were on the run from the military. And like, it, it just, it nowadays you watch these television shows and you make a great point. It's like, it's a people they all are tokenized you know they fit some sort of diversity casting that that needs to be there in order to reach the right demographics or yada yada and they always they fall short of at least entertaining myself and folks like yourself from you know our respective generations who might be used to more of that me i I'm a little younger for that kind of stuff but my grandpa would show me like cowboy movies and the A team and Bruce Lee so that was very much a part of my childhood but but yeah it, it definitely doesn't seem relatable you know to folks younger than myself they're, they're not interested in that kind of thing and and I think the the general State of culture, we'll say in more liberal cities, kind of reflects this less masculine and more, I don't want to call it feminine, because it's not even really feminine in the sense of the classic. It's more of this like androgyny that's being influenced, you know, on culture right now. And, you know, maybe that's divisionary. Maybe that's, as Alex Jones says, uh, all part of the depopulation campaign. But it's certainly frightening, you know, I heard somebody, I I forget if it was Tim Dillon or or someone describing, you know, these woke generations of people, they're not having children, they're not going to be around very long, you know. This is going to be a flash in the pan a hundred years from now and people are going to And maybe think of them like the hippies, like, oh yeah, some people are still woke, but that that was a thing that happened in the past. You know, like we still have hippies running around here and there. People used to call me a hippie, even though I'm not at all like that. But yeah, it's just, you know, I think it's something that might not, you know, actually be as big of a deal as it seems now. But it is interesting to think about how it's affecting the direction of culture. I mean they certainly seem to be siloing people into different camps in the sense that like, you know, and it's the, the, the variety of, you know, choices you could have. I mean, everything from being a furry to being a goddamn, you know, who knows what, like the, this, this world that they're giving people, it's very much like build your own character, fit a certain role, not so much, from a naturally creative point of view but more of like a manufactured like the way like you get you buy like skins in a video game you know what I mean like is that kind of making sense like you're still playing this role you have like a very limited level of creative choice and it's like this artificial kind of what's the word it's like anyways your thoughts on that well, you
3: said a lot of interesting things there. Like, you, you know, one of the things you said at the beginning was this idea about the masculine characters of the 70s and 80s. And and I agree, you know, when I'm watching TV, like nowadays, I can think back to, you know, when I was watching movies with, with young women, you know, they would complain about the way women were being portrayed. And I would sort of roll my eyes. mean, you know, I'm like, well... Now I know exactly what they, what they felt what they felt like. And uh, they had a point. And it is sad that there was, I mean, women were characterized in one way and there weren't, like, a lot of main characters that, that they could sort of mold themselves around. Or I don't think it's so much as molding yourself around, but... To relate you know, to. Uh, relate to. In, in, in the sense that, you know, Jim Rockford was a guy, he had his father and a bunch of friends... And he had this way he treated his friends, and he was sort of an example of a full life. Another thing that's interesting is most of these guys in the '70s and '80s had their own businesses, and you don't see that so much anymore either. Right. But uh, yeah, to your point of of the when people are being siloed, like I just feel like that dilutes the whole thing. Like there's not only this siloing; like you have all these different things you can be but you're not really being them for yourself. You're being them as part of somebody else's movie, right? Like in society, we should have all of these different things, right? You've got to have an interracial marriage and, you know, a lesbian and, you know, you know, transgender and, you know, you've got to have all these things. It doesn't matter what kind of life these people are living. You just got to have them. So pick one and be it. And it's very different from being a main character or this idea of living a full life having your own business, having your friends, your family, you know, like a a lover or whatever, right? Like that's what a main character does. And I I think that like a siloed character, like you described it, doesn't know what to do. That's just all they are. And it's probably a destructive way to think about yourself. Like you have an identity just in being this thing. Like it's the ultimate and objectification. Um which we're supposed to be against, or I thought, when I was growing up, that so that was something we weren't supposed to do.
1: Well, and even this, you know, this idea that people who are in these, we'll call them, you know, progressive silos are changing the world for the better. I feel like that's kind of been co-opted in order to, you know, maybe put blinders on people from what actually needs to be fixed. I mean, to, to your point, like about how, (laughs) when these masculine stories were more dominant and women felt like they didn't have as many, you know, stories they could relate to, you know, now it seems like we've gone completely to the other side instead of finding a happy medium, you know? And I wonder if, if it's almost like, you know, give, People, we like, let's think from the perspective of the all seeing controllers, whoever they may be, these people that are moving the pieces on the chessboard, CEOs, whoever they are, you know, maybe they're seeing how media fiction had an ability, especially in that same time period, like the news was totally different. You saw journalists actually solving problems by doing their job. Maybe they realize that, oh, we can keep polluting, keep being corrupt. We just have to create all these fake problems for people to get obsessed over. And this same radical generation that, you know, it's every group of 18 to 25, 20 somethings. They're always radical about something. So let's just give them a fake cause to be radical about. And then we can keep polluting, we can keep secretly, you know, corrupting economies and and fraudulently doing deals and all these things that are going on that are making our world a a darker, worse place, homelessness, drug, the drug crisis, pharmaceutical poisoning that's going on. I mean, all of these things are, are real problems that don't seem to be, you know, very significant to those who are in the streets, cutting highways off, marching, you know, for, for we'll say good causes, but are those good causes the most significant? Are they tackling that cause from the right angle? Are they really understanding the root of the cause uh, of, of, you know, the, the symptoms they're fighting against? I would say more often than not, they aren't. And that's probably because somewhere along the lines, fiction began to be leveraged for this kind of uh, controlling propaganda. I mean, propaganda was legalized by Obama, you know, something like 10 years ago now. And look how, look how crazy things have just become. And you can blame it on social media, but I I think more of it's to blame uh, is this aspect of propaganda that had been going on in other parts of the world. But, at least in America, it was a little more tame or, or less noticeable, we'll say. I, I don't know. It's, yeah, again, I, I feel like I'm going off on a lot of rants, but uh, what are your thoughts on, on any of that, Dan?
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree. The, you know, in terms of, like, the causes people choose to stand for, that can all, all be bent by the media, right? Like, you, you stand for one cause, you get no... Attention, no coverage. If that's what you're after, and that seems to be what people are after nowadays, right? We, we've like commodified attention, and that's the measure of success. Like how many views, how many likes, how many you know hearts, how many shares, like all all that stuff, right? If you care about that stuff, and we've been trained to care about it, um, then the, then you've signed up to be you know your 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 focus will be bent by the media by the algorithm right so it's no mystery that people can be guided to stand for one cause or another and or one cause and not another that they'll just ignore some things that seem maybe to you and me to be the most important things and and, and they'll they'll go like spend their whole life like you know, marching in the street for a cause that doesn't really seem to be a big deal. But, you know, the other form of propaganda that I think is sort of rampant is, know, this goes back to what I said about Bernie Sanders and the idea of unifying people versus dividing them, is that in all the stories I see now, or the great majority of them, um, everybody's deceiving everybody else, right? You don't really have a happy family. You can't trust your Your mother, you can't trust your father, you can't trust your spouse. And, like, everybody has a dark secret, right? Nobody's trustworthy. And I think this is just another way that we're being divided, right? We're we're being trained to see each other, to suspect each other, to expect the worst in everyone. And I, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's bent my mind. I feel like it's been my mind a little bit. Like, you know, you hear these things like Jeffrey Epstein, like all the pedophilia, Pizzagate, whatever. And you look into these things and it's like, this stuff really exists. Like maybe it doesn't exist as the media, the mainstream media will portray Pizzagate as this, like, as they want, is this ridiculous thing. But you look into it and you look into human trafficking, all this stuff exists and once you start seeing this stuff, once you start seeing conspiracy or whatever, it's, it's hard not to look at the whole world that way. And, yeah, the thing I'm seeing in stories is that we're being trained to look at our own families that way, to suspect everyone. You know, the, the January 6th things, you had, you had children turning in their parents for going to a protest and feeling like they did the right thing. And that's just horrible. You know, it, I mean, not only destroys a family, but I don't know, like that's stuff. When I was a kid, we were taught, and maybe this was propaganda, right? But we were taught that that's what the Russians did, right? That's what they did in Germany, right? That's what the communists did. Um, And and then I see January 6th and suddenly it's like, Oh, that's what, that's, that's what we do now. And we're encouraged. It's good. Because you get social media credit for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as you know, the the modern American family dynamic goes, it's been fragmented in many ways. I think there's still localized, wholesome culture in many parts of America. You know, you have these little micro cultures where people have a stronger sense of community than others. But if if you live your life in a, in a city or in one of these very kind of, what do you call them? Like template type suburbs, you know, where everybody's kind of living on this kind of artificial grid. It it seems like those are the, the majority of people who are, are falling victim to exploitation. And these media narratives are exploitative because yeah, they turn you against your family, which is your so- support system in this world, you know, and you look at other countries and how they support their elders, how they support their, their children and how they're more united as far as their ho- their home, you know, where people live. In America, we're very much like these like you know, split off into many different states and, you know, sometimes people will only see their family once or twice a year on holidays. And it, it, you know, it makes me sad in a lot of ways that culture has changed to, to this degree because I, you know, as much as I love my grandparents, it's very hard to relate to the world that they were raised in. And I'm very grateful that I have, you know, on my maternal side, my grandparents were from the silent generation. And on my paternal side, my grandparents are are from the boomer generation. So I have a very different, you know, perspective from both of them on what their cultures were like, what their early lives were like. You know, my grandpa on my dad's side would take me around town and be like, yeah, that's where the trolley used to be. A lot more cool stuff on the beach, like the whole boardwalk empire's type of atmosphere, you know, with the old amusement park rides and little stores everywhere and things like that. But when it comes to today, it's almost like they're trying to homogenize people into a global global civilization. Do you do you get that sense from media? I mean, it kind of has a sci-fi tinge to it a lot of times, but like you don't see a lot of sci-fi where people are Americans or people are are Russian or people are you know mm. insert cultural demographic here like it's more like we've become something else in the future It's like what they're trying to push us towards,
3: yeah, and maybe it's inevitable, but uh, I you know I think that the family has worked for a long time,
2: mm.
3: and I think it's also very convenient for government if they can dissolve the family unit, because it makes people vulnerable. Right. And we know that because, I mean, you look at statistics on children who grow up, you know, even without a father in the house, and they're much more likely to be abused, right? They're much more likely to fall into heavy drug use or alcoholism or whatever. And so you know that not having a strong family makes a person vulnerable, And one of the things that makes them vulnerable to is the influence of the media, the influence of the government through the media, the influence of anyone who chooses to to want to influence them. And uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, to me, if, if there's sort of an evil psyop, you know, and when I, when I think about the transgender thing and people complaining about this at schools or whatever. Like, I have no problem with transgender people, but I think that we need not to get between parents and their children. And a school should do everything they can to strengthen that relationship rather than dissolve it. And, uh, you know, the... The problem is like when I when I when I look at everything, it's like you don't want people to have a religion, you don't want people to have a family you don't want to, well why why is that? It's because all those things create stability and invulnerability right And you don't want people to think about things in a principled way. I mean that's another thing that's become sort of like an anachronism like to have principles and say, no, this is against my principles. If you can think about things that way, it's very easy to, to, uh, I guess, see what's, what's behind everything to say, no, this will lead me down a bad path because it's against my principles. But if you can dissolve principles, and I think the first part of that is getting people to abandon critical thought, rationalism, and, you know, like get away from rhetoric and, and get into sort of humiliation you know, or, or what they call cancel culture or, or, or whatever, right? So there's no, you don't debate people on their ideas anymore or, or the principles. You just insult them as a, as a person, denigrate them as a person. And uh, yeah, and if people are living by principles, everybody would see through this. Right. But But when you live by social media likes, and by, you know, how you're being received, and you let the algorithm sort of
1: bend your perception, um, then it's very easy to be manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of brings to mind what you mentioned in your the notes here about how we're all kind of being pushed into one big story and how, you know, with cancel culture is a good example, you know, it's not really about, debating one value over the other, those people who are canceling others, they have a a set narrative, they're set on, this is the story, anybody who disagrees with this is wrong, they're the villain in our story. And it seems like, you know, whether people are totally even clicked into what that, if that's, you know, that that's going on, they may not, might not even be conscious of that, sort of process going on. They just feel like they're standing up for what they're a part of, but it's this, it's this story that's been told that they've seen themselves as a role in they've, as we were saying before, they've casted themselves into one of these roles and now they're kind of fighting for the the collective. Do you think that's kind of a good way to describe it?
3: Yeah. And I think that the best stories, at least in my mind, like what separates like really great literature from mediocre stories is that there are no villains that that you can see things from everybody's perspective in the story that everybody has a three-dimensional character and and it's it's an easy thing to to cast you know villains against heroes like and i enjoy those stories some of them right but there's a certain laziness to that and uh, I mean, that was another thing in, in my novel. Like, I, I I worked very hard. Like, a lot of the characters that I created would start out just being carriers of of some like agenda of mine, or they would be there. You know, like I would be sort of making fun of them, and you know, eventually I'd find something lovable in the characters, and I would keep writing them until. I found the characters completely compelling and and lovable. Like, and then it's like, oh, you've discovered this character. And that's been my experience in life. Like, I haven't gotten to know, say, almost anyone, maybe anyone, without coming to feel a a sort of a a love for them, you know? And I, I mean, I hitchhiked around the country uh, five times. And, uh, like, everybody that I met, like, you know, you're in a car for five hours or sometimes a couple days and you get to know their story and they just, they become people. They become like full full people and you can see things. You can see what caused them to have the flaws that they have, you know, like you can see their greatness. You can see their their level of insight. Like, and I don't know, to me, that's that's sort of part of the beauty of, of life, and it was maybe one of the things I enjoyed most about writing um, was experiencing that, like in these characters that I created. And I mean, maybe we don't have enough of that right now in the world. I see very few stories. Like, I think one of the last shows I watched that that was told in that way was. A show called Patriot, which is on Amazon, which just blew me away. Like, I, I didn't think people could tell stories like this anymore. And uh, I mean, it was to watch it for me it was humbling. And you know, it was such a great experience because you, know, you have all these characters who are doing evil things, but you can see their motivations are they, in the, for the most part, they have these pure motivations. And they're driven. By like principles that are good right to do things that are they do by flawed reasoning but but it was such a beautiful story for me like that's the sort of story that that interests me it's the sort of story i, I tried to write yeah
1: well i'll say right now i think we got into a lot of really great concepts that are on my mind a lot i will say i'm someone who's kind of I fit that uh, description well, and I'm curious to know more about your life now in Central America. It sounds really interesting Uh, being a fellow New Englander. You're you're from New Hampshire, right? You said I grew up in in Connecticut. I live, you know, now I moved a little further north in Connecticut, but uh, I lived on Long Island Sound for most of my life, and yeah, it's, it's, totally foreign to me the idea of going to central america i've never been to a tropical place so i'd love to talk to you more about your experiences there man and uh, yeah the book tell folks where they can find it it's titled in the next moment everything will change an exploration of love time travel and the prism of narrative by daniel caulfield and the links will be in the description where do you recommend people go to uh, pick up the book? Is there a way for them to get a signed copy from you as well? Oh, no,
3: not right now. <laughs> but I would be uh, willing to do that. And I should be back in New Hampshire in another few weeks or whatever. If you do read the book, like, we could do the interview in person if you want. And, no, I'd be thrilled to hear what what you make of it.
1: I, I think... As far as the world is now, we have more options than ever to uh, to engage with media, you know. Um, it might not reflect those classic American values, you know, at least what rises to the top of this kind of artificial hierarchy. But now, thanks to, you know, shows like this one and all the others in this sort of milieu, I think this type of content has a real shot, you know, to organically reach people. And I think that's part of this whole synchronicity concept that a lot of people are realizing is a real factor in their lives. You know, they, you might be hearing this interview and this book really touches you. Then you share that with a friend who doesn't even listen to podcasts and th- that book touches them. You know, it's like, it's this whole domino effect that we can kind of not only be a part of, but step out of and examine now that there's like, I don't know, more of a record of all of these interactions because we have like a digital record of it. I, I'm sure synchronicities have always existed. They were probably just harder to grasp when things weren't written down and ubiquitously recorded. But yeah, man, I love the direction of this conversation totalgeniuspress.com is where they can find the book is there anywhere else you want to send people uh, your social media or anything like that
3: no if anybody wants to get in touch with me if you you love the book you have something to say I think there's a contact on Total Genius Press I'd love to hear it and I love the name of your podcast my family thinks I'm crazy too and they're half right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <Right on. laughs> oh yeah well i'm sure that'll we could talk about that in our next conversation but yeah i can only imagine i have some friends from new hampshire and they're not you guys aren't all that different from us in connecticut so <laughs> i could <can> imagine <laughs> mm-hmm. well right on this has been great dan i really appreciate it i don't know what time it is down there But I I wish you a good, good day, sir. And to everybody listening, please follow up. The links are in the description. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let Dan know what you think of his novel. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Daniel Caulfield. Go and check out his book, In the Next Moment, Everything Will Change, An Exploration of Love, Time Travel, and the Prism of Narrative. And I'll be honest, i at first I was like, you know, we don't typically interview fiction authors, my man, so I don't know. And uh, I, I regret saying that because it was a great interview and I'm going to read this book. And uh, have him back on the show to talk a little bit more about it. Maybe we'll talk more about time travel, something that we didn't really touch on in this conversation. But it's a, it seems like it's a big part of his book. I think this is going to change my Amazon book algorithm. I'm getting a ton of uh, fiction books now on my Amazon now that I'm looking at this. But anyways... That's all for this episode. Shout out to Dan. Go and check out his website. It's linked in the description. Of course, if you want to support the show, not only will you get extended editions of each episode, uh, well, not every episode, but most episodes, like the last episode where we had Izzy Griffin on and he went deep about some of the dark secrets behind the music industry, particularly in uh, California. So, yeah, don't miss that if you decided not to immediately sign up for the Patreon and listen to that entire episode. Uh you're going to miss out. So go and check it out and uh I'll say there's a ton of great episodes on the way. One of them that I'm considering putting on the Patreon for a couple weeks just to see how people react. It's a it's a bit controversial, but I don't know. I think we'll lean into it. So Sign up on the Patreon or the Substack if you're curious. Um, we got some awesome new episodes planned for Esoteric America, the other podcast that I do with my girlfriend Tara and our friend Roman. Uh, Chad will occasionally be on the show. He, he used to be on the show every episode, but for now uh, we're going to have him on whenever he's available. But um, yeah, new episodes to come from Esoteric America, so be sure to check out the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy YouTube channel or go over to the Esoteric America RSS feed. It has its own RSS feed, and I'm going to be adding more uh, to that soon, possibly a short-form version of the Esoteric America show where Tara and I share uh, maybe folk tales, little stories from different trips that we take and all sorts of interesting stuff that might not make it into a full episode but definitely are worth sharing with you amazing people who of course are here for the most part in esoteric America. Shout out to all our European uh listeners. Uh not trying to leave you guys out or anything, but that's where we are, so that's what we're what we're researching, and if you guys want to contribute Esoteric Europe, hey, by all means, start an Esoteric Europe show. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's about it for this free version of the outro. Uh, I'm thinking about doing an extended outro for this episode with a friend, but it's very late right now when I'm recording this, and I don't know... That I can call anyone other than Roman, who lives all the way in Hawaii, where it's still pretty early. So, uh, I think we'll we'll try to do that. He just texted me. So another incentive for signing up on the Patreon. So, uh, and the Substack, which it, uh, eventually will be essentially just the mirror version of the Patreon with articles. Unfortunately, I can't. Do it the other way around. Can't publish the articles to Patreon. But, you know, some of you are here to uh, read and learn about books. Others are here because they like to listen and learn that way. So I think Substack is for uh, a different segment of the audience. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Prove me wrong. Sign up for the Substack. Um, Anyways, that's it, folks. Thanks for being here. Big shout-out to Daniel Caulfield. His book is linked in the description as well as his website. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
2: Little extra, terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess, too much off with of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles sealed the ears of the young. Hobby saying singing shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw bomb with guns. Check the facts, check the fed check the stars. Stanley mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each stay on. You could stick with your own ways, but eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid And I can see the red on your lip stain, white skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Can keep your blood soaked heritage and run a soul off the moon land narrative. Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Come morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an navy and it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Think that I'm off in the deep end. Want too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beans, another 1492. And 9 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor. Riding, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on the Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up can. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. come morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby My family thinks I'm crazy Maybe, maybe, maybe Just maybe Stuck in bed so my baby, boss, thanks I'm lazy And that's it, it what it's all coming crazy. crazy I'm only baby, getting that feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pal thinks I'm the american and it's shady Maybe, I'm maybe, feeling unengaged The counters of the fifth kind on the table so You can tell me that the president's maybe, an atheist maybe, And it wouldn't faze me maybe, My maybe. family maybe. thinks I'm crazy Yeah I think one thing I've learned is You can't rule anything out, so